Hi, everybody. My name is Matt Brown. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and the founder of Global Progress. Thanks to everyone for tuning in today and welcome to the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is a joint coalition of three organizations, Global Progress, Canada 2020, and the Institute for Fiscal Studies uh, and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Our goal is to start a conversation about post-pandemic recovery. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us at recoveryproject.org. Let's begin. Uh, we're very fortunate to have with us today Ludovic Asher, a leader of the Dutch Labour Party since 2016 and former Deputy Prime Minister of the Netherlands. Thanks for being here, Ludovic. You recently published a very interesting article, which you can find on the Recovery Project uh, website, talking about how to rebuild uh, after the COVID crisis. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask you in a, in a few moments uh, to, to sort of talk us through some of those early ideas and then go into a conversation. Before I do that, though, I'd like to say to those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, this will be an open dialogue. We will open up to questions. The team at the Recovery Project will be tracking questions. So please do use the, the Q&A facility and we'll, we'll do our best to integrate uh, your concerns and, and the issues you want to address into that conversation. But if I may, uh, Ludovic, I'll turn to you. Thanks once again for joining us. Uh, welcome to the Recovery Project, and we look forward to hearing your ideas on uh, rebuilding after the COVID crisis. Well, thank you very much, Matt, and thank you everybody for, for tuning in and, and joining in this conversation. I also appreciate the Recovery Project, and, and I think it's very important to bring uh, progressive thoughts together around the issue of how to, to recover and how to rebuild. Uh, for me, I think this, this crisis, <clears throat> of course, it's it's uh, very consuming. You you watch the news all the time. You you watch your Twitter feed, and and that makes it sometimes hard to to really think hard about recovery. But I think it's an obligation for us to do so because otherwise we will be stuck in in a new normal that would be uh, very much like the old normal, but 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 just a bit worse. And as a young boy, I had I was fortunate enough to. Um, to be able to talk to my grandfather, uh, who survived Bergen-Belsen uh, concentration camp uh, in Nazi Germany, and talk to him about what what were their expectations for what would happen after the war, if there if there was to become an, a time of peace. And I still remember that he told me, well, our first and foremost uh, hope was, of course, uh, to be safe, to be secure. Um, we were not very optimistic about the human, human mankind um, and they had all reason to be pessimistic about it. But he also said there was also a feeling that we should do things differently to prevent conflict, to uh, make sure that people were able to make a decent living, um, make sure that we work together internationally instead of uh, on a nation state level. And I think this, this pandemic is, is not... It's not like a war, but it's it's a shock. It's the biggest shock, at least in the Netherlands, um, since World War II, the biggest peacetime shock we ever uh, lived through. So we should ask ourselves, what would we want to change in order to, to rebuild our society in a fair and just way? And just to, to kick off the, the conversation, I think there's there's three issues uh, we should be able to tackle. And uh, first of all, it's, it's a way we, you know, the social contract is built between uh, the government, uh, citizens, and, and corporations. Um, over the last two or three decades, we've seen that, that and there's num numerous studies about it, and, and most of the viewers 
who have written those studies, so they will know much more about it than I, but we've seen it, that the balance has shifted from, from uh, profit for workers to profit for shareholders. And I think if we do not change that now, it will hamper recovery and it will cause further inequality. And inequality is, I think, the second aspect we need to look into. It's also contagious. Uh, you can see in the United States how the, the virus is, is hurting people in a different way. And I think if we do not realize this while recovering, inequality could also become pandemic uh, and, and therefore cause social unrest and make it much harder to build uh, our society in, in a good way. And the third part, I think, is if we want to look to for a brighter future, um, we have to realize that that the, the the bill cannot be picked up by normal working people again, uh, because actually in my country, uh, Matt mentioned this. I was a deputy prime minister at the time we had to recover from the financial crisis. In my country, people still feel the pain of austerity of that financial crisis, and the idea that we could, you know ask them to, to pay for this one again is simply inconceivable. But we do have to answer the question, who is going to pay for it? So that also requires, from the political point of view, a much more ambitious, robust politics of redistribution, a much more robust uh, politics of, of progressive policies. Um, when we engage this issue uh, by you know safeguarding small and medium enterprises, but asking the global corporation, the big tech firms that are actually making a living in these days, uh, we're using them right now to, to help us pick up that bill. So that, that's just three points uh, to, to, to take to start the discussion. And, but I'd be very happy to, uh, to go into uh, both policy and, and thought about where we should go and how, how we should rebuild. Um, I think we should do it together. Uh, part of it is international solidarity is not a problem, but is a solution. And so far it's been lacking. And, and, and also my current government, which I'm opposing, I'm, I'm leading the, the Labour Party as an opposition party, uh, has not shown that much solidarity. And I think that's a mistake, not only in the short-term self-interest, but also in the longer-term interest of both my country and this continent. Thank you, man. No, thank you, Ludovic. And thanks for sharing those three points. Right? I think as we go through the conversation, we can, we can dig into each of them in a little more detail, but I, I might start actually by sort of taking us back a little bit from that. And you mentioned your experience during the global financial crisis. And you, I think you alluded to that when you said we can't let ordinary people pay uh, for this crisis again. Uh, so one of the questions I'd like to ask you in, in a big picture frame is, what are the lessons you learned from the crisis a decade ago? Uh, how does that inform your view of how we should uh, approach recovery now. And related to that, what do you see as the, the, the international context for that? Of course, when we had the global financial crisis, there was a great deal of collaboration amongst the G20 members, members of the EU and elsewhere, and that seems to be lacking. So, so I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit on that past experience and how it, it can inform what we're trying to achieve today. Well, I think in general, during the, the global financial crisis, the response, at least in Europe, was too soft on the financial corporations and too hard on, on our citizens. Um, and, and you can, of course, see differences, and it helps if there's a, a progressive or a labor government. Uh, but still, in general, we have to be honest about this. Uh, I think we, we, we 
trusted or put too much faith in, in uh, a cultural change in financial institutions that just didn't occur. So as soon as they got the opportunity, bonuses went up again and irresponsible behavior came back. While at the same time being very strict on, on uh, budget restrictions and austerity. And that has not only, I think, damaged um, people in their personal life, but it also damaged trust in, in government and trust in progressive politics. Um, of course, we've done a lot of things to, to you know, pull through and we've seen a very good recovery afterwards. But, but my personal experience when I was in government, we, we were already in a very ambitious program. And in 2013, we had to, to cut another 6 billion euros. There was no economic rationale for that. It was just, you know, almost a race to the, to the bottom. Uh, and so that's one lesson is look at the long-term economic prospects and make sure that people uh, can actually uh, survive uh, the, the, the midterm effects of this crisis. So invest in their jobs and make sure that, that uh, the public sector uh, is robust during and along this crisis. Second, I think we have to uh, adopt a different approach on how we look at, at public debt. Uh, my country always has a fixation on, on uh, having a very low public debt, but at current interest rates, that doesn't seem so, so logical. And third, I think you, you're very right. G20 was under Gordon Brown, uh, uh, was, was quick to respond in a very uh, good way, I believe. And of course, the mistakes were made, but uh, there was a lot of cooperation. This time around, even though the WHO uh, gives some very clear guidelines, both on the strategy on how to tackle the pandemic itself, but also on the economic strategy, we don't see that cooperation. And it would be helpful if there's another uh, US administration. Uh, I think we would all welcome that. Uh, but even, you know, left aside that part, I think within Europe, uh, cooperation has been very weak and it's so necessary when it comes to the vaccine we need, when it comes to uh, adopting the same strategy so we can open our borders, uh, when it comes to economic recovery, uh, we, you, no country can do it by themselves. You would just go out, go down if you try to do it by, by yourself. So I think there's also an obligation or an opportunity for progressive politicians uh, in, in positions in, in all those countries to step up their cooperation and make sure that we demand uh, to, to you know approach this together because otherwise we just will not be able to fix it and, and serve our, our voters. I certainly agree with you that there's going to be need for greater international cooperation and that's indeed one of the, the driving forces of global progress and of the, the recovery project. The first point that you made in your, your opening remarks was about the social contract and we've had a question from Paul Williams that relates to that in some way uh, when he talks about how would you manage the payments from large corporations, what would be the process for getting them to contribute more? I greatly enjoyed reading your essay, and I advise all of our, those of you watching today, if you haven't already, to go back to that essay. But in that, in that piece, you talk a little bit about uh, those, those companies, domestic companies that have benefited from support from the government, being held to a higher standard of account going forward. You've raised the idea of uh, a recovery tax on, on the social media, media companies. I wonder if you could just go in a little bit into how you think that might actually work in practice. What are the kind of policy mechanisms that you could use to ensure that as we move on, that sort of neoliberal uh, underlining of the social contract is moved and we're replaced with something, a great one, what I would call reciprocity and underpinning the social contract on the part of businesses? 
Well, thanks, Paul, for, for posing this question, because I think it, it's a very important one, uh, because the decisions are made right now. Uh, most countries in Europe have, have uh, made robust um, packages to, to safeguard jobs and, and save companies. Uh, the Netherlands is looking at a budget deficit of 92 billion euros uh, for this fiscal year. So th that's quite enormous uh, for a small country. Um, I think we, we have to be very clear that, we, that demands need to be made. Um, right now, the Netherlands, we are, as taxpayers, paying 90% of the salaries uh, of people working in the private sector. 90%. We think that we should ask in return for those companies to behave responsibly, and to behave responsibly is not paying dividends, is not uh, awarding bonuses, is not buying your own stock, is second to, to continue hiring those people. So we will not accept them uh, firing people we just paid their salary for. And third, to, to adopt an approach for the future where you, where you show that corporate social responsibility is part of, of your future in the Netherlands. Those are three demands that need to be made today, because otherwise we know that just a, a, a moral appeal will not do the job. So that's, I think, the first level. Uh, in those big packages that are rolled out all across Europe, you need to put in those demands, uh, because otherwise we'll not be in a position to, to realign corporate social responsibility in, in a new social contract. Second, I think at the European level, uh, after this crisis, we need to agree on the minimum level of corporate tax because we've seen the situation for for over a decade now, and it's been part of the neoliberal consensus where the bigger corporations can just shop and and just say to to my government or to your government, well, we're going to go to the neighbor if you do not lower corporate tax, and this has led to an enormous decrease in the amount of tax paid by the bigger. Uh, corporation and the only way to stop it is not by a single country but by adopting a minimum level and it's a taboo of course because taxation is is a national uh, competence but in this uh, era i think it's not only acceptable to do it i think it's necessary if we want to make sure that the the, the bill is not picked up by uh, by single uh, uh, household middle class people and the third part you already mentioned matt is that of course, you also see that the number of, of companies are actually benefiting. Uh, there was a, a measure during the World War where there was also a term for it, those benefiting from the war uh, were asked to, to pay uh, a windfall tax or, or a sort of recovery tax for companies that disproportionately benefit from the enormous damage to the economy uh, because of the pandemic. So you could think of some of the huge retailers, but, but especially, I think, the big tech firms. Uh, are, are having uh, quite a field day and and um, you know as per usual they're offering to develop apps uh, and and their owners are you know spreading around charity money but I think it's it's time for them to, to pay their part and it should be part of a of a, of a bigger re recovery project kickstarting the economy again and making sure that that there's fairness in who's paying for what I agree with you that we need a fairer system. I'd like to turn, if I can, a little bit to talk about those people who are helping us through the crisis and what may emerge as one of the political cleavages uh, coming out of this. You know, you mentioned that the government is now paying 90% of salaries for large numbers of workers to, to stay at home. Yet on the front line, you know, we have health workers, delivery people, shop workers, others who are working longer hours, putting themselves at risk to do that. 
it seems to me that you know like as we emerge out of this crisis there has to be a rebalancing in terms of those workers to tackle the inequality and i wonder if you could just talk about the politics of that how you see progressives being able to build a narrative on that whether there's a, a renewed sense of social cohesion in our societies that you think will allow, allow us to, to make that shift to pay you know not only to demand that those people in the private sector on the front line get get a fairer deal but also those of us who are work those of those working in the in health services and, and other care industries there's a feeling of, of cynicism or, or um, sometimes even betrayal amongst those working in, in, in healthcare uh, when they see the, the clapping happening, uh, as happens in many countries. And on and, and one end, it's a very sweet way of showing our appreciation. But on the other end, they're just saying, well, we don't want to be heroes or called heroes. Uh, we want to be able to do our work in a safe manner. Um, even though personal protection equipment has been very scarce and we just want to be uh, paid in a decent way for the work we're doing and I think there's a there's a there's a message in in their response for all of us especially uh, for for progressive uh, politics and progressives around the globe and I think you know we've been on the defense on on the debate on what real jobs are and what government should pay for uh, when it comes to, to uh, public workers and, and workers in the vital sectors for too long. So <clears throat> our response should be to, to actually um, stop clapping and, and start organizing for, for uh, a more profound and more structural change. Uh, not a one-term uh, payout, but you know, a re-evaluation of what's really important and what, what provides quality. And in my country, I think there's, there's two things that need to be addressed immediately. We have the most flexible workforce in Europe. <coughs> and most of the people working on the front line are in, in precarious contracts. So that should change because that, that enables people to also organize and, and, and raise their voice. And second, it's just about wages. Uh, we need to raise minimum wages. Uh, you see that the... the Economic consensus changing. The orthodoxy was that a higher minimum wage is, of course, killing jobs. But uh, this has has been proven wrong in many studies, and you see that many states in the United States have, have raised their minimum wage. But this is also a way of making sure that that uh, people working in the distribution centers uh, actually deserve uh, a decent income, and that also helps, I think, to to touch a more sensitive issue in uh, breaking the chain of um, continuous underpayment of, of labor migrants who are doing some of those more precarious jobs. I think that's just a result of, of society not, not, not paying decent wages and, and secure contracts instead of, so they're not causing the problem, but they're, they're victims of a system that is, I think, exploratory and, and not fair. Uh, means that I, see, I think also elections need to be fought on this issue. We will have a general election next year, and I think uh, the United States seem to have an election uh, sometime soon. So this has to be on the election agenda. We need to campaign on this uh, because it's actually a clear choice uh, voters will have to make. Will we go back to the old normal, which will be a more unequal, unfair normal? Or will we try to build something new which actually appreciates what we see happening right now. You know, I think as we move towards a new normal, not back to the old normal, something that's a little bit more progressive, 
uh, if you will. I wonder whether it's not time for us all to also to think about how we measure the econo our economic economic health. So for you know like you know as you said, your country has been uh, obsessed with uh, deficits, uh, even though borrowing is low. Uh, so there's a need to move away from that. But I also wonder, you know, Jacinda Ardern, who uh, has actually handled, I think, the crisis uh, in New Zealand about it as anyone else in the developed world. Uh, you know, last year she introduced uh, the first well-being budget, and uh, looking at a broader set, set of issues, including equality, mental health, a broader investment in public services, and so on, uh, as a means of uh, assessing the real economic health of the nation. I wonder. If you think that's something that progressives everywhere should be pursuing, whether we should be looking for a different standard of measurement about how our economy is doing and how it's serving society and, and the communities. Well, first of all, let me address uh, a discussion. You're not, you're not uh, saying or stating this, but, but you can read about people who are saying, well, we need actually degrowth or we need uh, to shrink our economies. I'm not part of that team, so to say. I, I think we do need growth. We do need jobs. Uh, to prosper and build our, our fair welfare society. Um, but then again, there's, there's big differences. And I think Jacinda Arlen uh, has been an, an example uh, in, in leadership for all of us, not only in the choices she made, but also in the way she communicated them to, to the people of New Zealand. Uh, we've seen how she responded to the Christchurch attacks, uh, but during this pandemic, uh, I especially like when she said, well, um, the, two, the fairy tooth is, is also part of a, a vital uh, profession. So, you know, you don't have to worry about these kids. And addressing kids directly, smiling, and, and I think that there's a lot to learn for all of us from what she's done. That also goes for this well-being budget. Uh, so I think first you need to uh, make sure that we do need growth. We do need our economies to grow. Uh, but there's choices to be made. And it's always been presented to us as, as, a, as a TINA, there is no alternative. Growth means pollution. Growth means insecurity for workers. Growth means uh, low pay for you and high uh, rewards for the, for the stock owners. Um, growth means your well-being might suffer for our uh, GDP growth. And, and that's a discourse that has to change. And I think what Jacinda has done is, is not the only way to do that, but, it, but it's a very inspiring way to show people that, that the things we appreciate when we're you know, laying awake at night are not necessarily the, the, the same things that we're appreciating when we read our uh, neoliberal macroeconomic reports. You know, when, when, when you lay awake at night, you worry about the jobs for your kids, whether they will be able to find affordable housing, uh, whether it'll be healthcare when you're old, whether the planet will still be there. Uh, so they, they are actually um, worth so much more to, to, to both you and me and, and all people tuning in that that has to have a place and it has to be balanced. And I think a part of it is that, that we are educated in, in measuring some costs and other costs are just, you know, for society. Uh, pollution is, is, I think, an important example of that. And once you taken into account, uh, I think you get a fairer uh, image of what what's helps both your economy and your well-being. And I think if we as progressives uh, form governments that, that put the well-being of our citizens uh, at the front, that could not only help 
uh, us win elections, but it could more importantly help us uh, and our citizens to to find a place in the modern world without the feeling that, that there's always a trade-off and you're always on the wrong end. Thanks. And, and thanks also for clarifying, you know, you're correct. I wasn't uh, suggesting that we don't need growth at all, as, uh, as you rightly point out, suggesting that we might need to look at a variety of different indicators to look at our economic health. Um, but on this sort of uh, dilemma and the, these tough choices we have to make, um, you know, I wonder how you feel about sustainable development or the climate uh, uh, it, uh, and its place within the recovery. You know, there are a number of people who are sort of talking about this pandemic as the revenge of the planet in some way, that it's because of, uh, uh, that, you know, uh, the way we have interacted as human beings, our economy and society with, with, with Mother Nature, that we're in this situation. Uh, and there are those who say that because we're not flying as much, because we're not consuming as much, because we're not traveling as much, that, you know, the, the climate has benefited. And that may lead some to say that there's a trade-off between moving on from this pandemic and also, you know, defeating it and saving the climate and recovering and, and getting growth back again. I mean, do you see that as a trade-off or, or do you find see a way in which actually the sustainable development agenda, the green agenda, can actually be one of the key drivers of the recovery? I look at COVID-19 as a, as a horrible disease. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I've, I know people who lost their, their, their relatives to it. So I, I have some trouble looking at it as, uh, our own, you know, doing or mother nature taking revenge and, and look now the dolphins are swimming uh, in the Yamstel. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's a horrible disease and we have to deal with it and there's nothing fun about it. And, um, but that, that doesn't mean that we cannot learn from what we're seeing. And one of the things we see that I do like is, is very clean air um, and that saves lives. Um, another thing that I can, see that I do like is that we are able as society to to improvise and to change when we need it and to change really fast uh, and I think those aspects the quality of life by you know breathing clean air and our ability which is much bigger than than, than one would have thought of to to adapt and to change are things we need to, to take into the equation when we're dealing with the climate crisis because that's that's another crisis that's creeping up uh, on us uh, so I think it, it is uh, important to use uh, the momentum and the, the enormous uh, investment that's needed for economic recovery to make the necessary changes and make sure that we um, help companies to change, that we help them to pollute less uh, and, and um, diminish their, their, their carbon footprint. Uh, so yes, I think it should be a, re a green recovery, not as 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 a semi-religious, uh, guilt-inspired uh, way to, to repay Mother Earth, but as a, a modern progressive way to, to address this crisis, which is in itself threatening, uh, threatening us, uh, being it you know, in a different level in different parts of the world. And, and what's, you know, what's hopeful is that I think it also shows that we can uh, if we make that choice, if we help companies, but also if we tax them, if we introduce the carbon tax to make sure that it's actually economically viable to change the way you produce, uh, then we could use this, this as an opportunity in itself uh, without, uh, uh, you know, Instagramming that, that, that this is just a wonderful occasion because I think in, in general it's not.
I agree with those sentiments wholeheartedly. I, I wonder if I could um, uh, move on to the element of international solidarity in this in this era. It's certainly clear that much of the developing world will be hit by uh, by this awful pandemic, and and may well uh, likely be uh, uh, harder hit and unable to get some of the resources that they need to to uh, to recover as quickly as, as the more developed nations. So. You know, I wonder what your thoughts are on, on that. And then uh, a, a related issue, but more political. Um, you know, we, we have seen the rise of, of populism across many of the uh, Western European and, and indeed Eastern European uh, countries. Uh, and a call to sort of close up our borders. Uh, I suspect that, you know, they will be invigorated, many of the populists, uh, uh, by what they're witnessing at the moment and, and try and push that agenda further. So I'm wondering what you think international solidarity uh, looks like uh, in a post-COVID-19 world. That's a very important question. Uh, and, and we have to answer it in at, th at least three different levels. I think uh, you mentioned the developing world. Uh, I, you, you need to realize that there's no real security from the virus if it's not... Uh, under control anywhere in the world. So that, that's why it's a pandemic. So the, the idea that we can just, you know, uh, protect ourselves and, and, and uh, have the rest of the world, you know, uh, sweat it out, I think that would be naive and it would be not uh, morally acceptable. So it's, it's crucial that we, that we help developing countries. Also because of some of the uh, the responses to COVID-19 are, you know, hurting them in a different way. A, a lockdown in countries without social security is just making sure that people are starving. Uh, and you can see happening, this happening at some places in the world. So I think there should also be uh, a global aid conference on, on how we are going to help developing countries not only deal with the, the health crisis, but also with economic recovery. Uh, the second level of uh, international solidarity is, is within the developed world, uh, between the, the countries of the developed world. Um, uh, the cooperation between the United States and Europe uh, has to improve if we, if we want to, you know, unilateral extreme measures are, are both hurting economies and, and not helping us in, in the fight against COVID-19. But also within the European Union, you see, of course, a lot of distrust um, and and those are sensitive issues yeah, because solidarity translates uh, especially you know in the hands of of uh, populists in, in paying for someone else and a lot of stereotyping goes on and this has led to brexit uh, in a way this discourse of of tabloids uh, you know telling the the brits for decades that uh, they were actually paying uh, for for the others and, and that the others were benefiting so we have to be extremely careful about this. But I strongly believe that uh, you need solidarity now in terms of, of how you're going to pay for recovery, but also in actually working together on a very pragmatic and practical level in trying to help companies, trying to make sure that you, we find the best strategy to, to control the disease uh, in this period of time. A populist right now, well, it depends. You see an enormous rally around the flag effect all over the world. 
and it can be rallying around the populist flag, but, but also about uh, conservative or liberal or social democratic flag. This, this will, you know, uh, this will ease away, I think, when the, when the current crisis, the immediate crisis uh, is, is over. Uh, and then it's important that we present a clear agenda for our future. Uh, because if, if we do not present a progressive vision, a roadmap for where we're going to go, how we want to emerge from this crisis, then it's a populist to say, well, I have the solution. Uh, close all borders, uh, blame China, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, but I'm quite optimistic uh, because it also, I think the crisis also shows the need for competence, the need for you know using uh, scientific advice, uh, the need for open discussions on what's the best approach. Uh, I think populists have also been caught out uh, by you know you, you just cannot fake newsing this this crisis away. Uh, so we have to step up and not talk so much about the populists, but more about our alternative, our choices, present them. But then I'm quite positive that we can. Uh, emerge not only from the COVID crisis but also emerge uh, from from the populist threat. I'd like to transition if I can now to some questions about democracy and some of the democratic dilemmas that we may may face. Um, it seems clear obviously that we're gonna you know we talked here about the big tech companies and it seems clear that in some ways we may well end up being slightly dependent on some of their technologies as we ease social distancing measures as we try and open up and return people to work safely. Um, I wonder what you think about how we can ensure that we respect and protect people's privacy uh, during a period where we may well be tracking and tracing who they've met uh, 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 and who they've come into contact and, and what sort of framework or digital rights framework we might be able to build around that uh, to ensure that it's, it only lasts for as long as necessary and doesn't become a kind of permanent feature of our society. I think you're, you're very right that, that this is a true dilemma uh, because I think we all long for reopening and, and you know, uh, making sure that, that the restaurants are open again and that we can enjoy uh, the good weather. Uh, but right now we do, we do not have uh, the right protection in place. Um, I think if, if we look at technological solutions, we have to first say that they can only uh, be part of the the, the, the approach. They can never replace old-fashioned tracking and tracing, which is done by human beings. Um, I think some countries, Canada, uh, but also Germany, uh, are applying that lesson quite well. So they're hiring students and volunteers and people to help tracking and tracing, because that's what we need to do. You, you want to eliminate the virus, and once it, it pops up, you need to have an organization in place, but also the, the, just the human beings in place to make phone calls and visits uh, and then isolate and quarantine. Uh, but of course, technical solutions could be helpful. Um, but here, uh, Big Tech has, has a reputation of overpromise and underdeliver because I think um, so far, uh, we've, we've also seen some very, uh, I'm not, I don't know how to say it politely, but it, it sometimes just is not true. Uh, but they could be very helpful and, and we need them on the longer term. I think there's a number of, of uh, demands have to be made by society. 
also from a democratic point of view. First of all, it has to be open source software. We cannot, you know, allow this to be part of, of a trade secret. Second, it has to be temporary. Third, it has to be voluntary. You don't want people to, you know, to force people to bring a mobile phone and, and put on an app uh, to be able to do this. Uh, four, you don't want this to be uh, in the hands of, of a private uh, company because there's data involved. <clears throat> so that has to be in public hand. And five, you don't want it to be uh, traced to, to individuals. Uh, they need to be able to, to be warned, but you don't want a central database with the, the whereabouts of millions of, of people at a certain point of time because that technology could be very dangerous. Um, tech firms has, have told me that within those five demands, they, they will be able to develop something that could be helpful. And that I would welcome, I would applaud that. But I think we need to protect uh, basic human rights and our democracy in, in making those demands, um, you know, from, you know, before starting to adopt those, those apps on a large scale. Thanks, Ludovic. I mean, in some ways, that's saying that we use a technology to give people information that they might have been exposed to the virus rather than to, to track them. So it's, it falls on a, a sort of certain degree of individual and personal responsibility to follow up, which I think most people have in some ways exhibited during this crisis. Um, I'd like to also just raise a question about what kind of democratic or institutional reform might be required in Europe. You, you spoke about the need to to uh, harmonize corporate tax levels in, in Europe, for example, uh, something that's been a taboo for a long while. You have also been very uh, forthright in your view that we need some form of uh, more advanced uh, common European debt strategy uh, to help uh, uh, the southern countries, but you know, everybody recover from this, the, the, the financial uh, and budgetary pressures of this crisis. But of course, that's very tricky to achieve in the current European framework. So I'm wondering whether you think there might be a, a case for uh, advocating for demo, some democratic or institutional reform at the European level uh, or modernization that would allow and facilitate the development of a common European strategy. I don't want to sound too, too negative about the, the technological innovation that we also see, uh, because there's something wonderful in that. You see an enormous development. I think there's 8,000 peer-reviewed articles on, on COVID-19 already. And also on the, on the technological scale, there's a lot of innovation. Uh, there's, there's an Amsterdam hospital uh, that has um, provided people with an app that can help them uh, self-diagnose and, and therefore track the development of the disease. So there's a lot of uh, positives to be said about that, that technological aspect of the crisis. So you have to be careful and stake your demands. But you also have to embrace the fact that we, we use all our knowledge and all our skills and all our, all our innovation to deal with this uh, crisis. Uh, then to come to, you, to your next question, I think um, on the institutional level, we need to allow ourselves to reevaluate the way the European Union is organized. Um, two examples, when it comes to competition law, uh, that's been in place as, as one of the pillars, a rock solid of the European Union. But it also has come to mean something that, that, that quite often protected um, big corporate interests and, and hampered hospitals from working together or hampered uh, self-employed to organize because that's the, the, the direct translation from 
aspects of competition law. Um, now we're in a period where there's massive uh, state aid for corporations, where we see that in, a, in order to, to tackle this, this crisis, hospitals have to work together. Uh, they're not competing, they have to work together. Uh, so that, that should lead to a re-evaluation of, of that part of European law. The same goes, I think, for competence questions. I think we've seen now that um, if, we, if we want to be able to recover from this, there has to be a way to pay for it. Countries cannot pay for it by themselves. So there has to be a way to raise money. And there's just you know, a limited way, uh, amount of ways to do this. It could by, be by taxation. So you could have uh, a European taxation, for example, on big tech, which would uh, cause a certain, a certain amount of income, um, which could be used to, to borrow money to pay for recovery. Or uh, as, as a number of countries, you can decide to work together and for a defined and limited period of time and, and amount of money, you can combine, mutualize uh, your debts on this issue. A uh, very tabooish subject, but not so strange if you look at how, for example, the United States responds to crises like this. Uh, but I would, I would um, think that this should lead to, to an open debate on how Europe can, can be enabled to respond in, in a more swift and direct manner to this crisis. And I'm glad that uh, the European Union countries, member states, have, have agreed on, on this first package, uh, which consists out of three approaches and combining for almost 500 billion euros. But I think nobody uh, would discuss the fact that we actually need uh, double that amount. Uh, and, and I think we, you know, taboos will not help us here. So yes, that should lead to an institutional realignment. It should think of rethinking uh, on what issues Europe should be competent. I would always be, I would think that Europe could be a bit more relaxed on uh, for example, how, company, how countries will deal with uh, labor migration. You can, you can have them uh, make their own arrangements to make sure that this, this is not hurting labor markets, but actually that it's free movement of people instead of free lunch for, for the big corporations. Uh, but yes, this, this needs to be discussed. And it's a difficult discussion. Everybody knows it. But I think it's about time. Thanks, Ulrich. I mean, I certainly think if there had been a bit more discretion on the freedom of movement uh, of workers, we may have uh, been in a situation where the United Kingdom was still uh, a member uh, of the European Union. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, no longer is, to my great regret. Um, I'm going to move the final two questions, but I'd just like to say, uh, Sherry uh, Krojman, um, sorry if I butchered your name, uh, has, has, uh, on the chat facility you may not have seen, has been talking about the need for a genuine progress, progress indicator, which I think is a, a very good way for progressives to think about the uh, branding or talking about the, uh, the well-being budget. And so maybe that's something that we can all explore as, uh, as we move forward. But you've already addressed that, that question. But there's also a lot of talk uh, or about uh, a lot of interest in your view around universal basic in income. Do you see this as a way uh, of helping us out of the crisis? I mean, in many ways, you could say the vast majority of our workers now are on a kind of 90% salary UBI type system. As we begin to sort of ease that out, is universal basic income a way in which we can facilitate that transition or, or should we be looking at other measures? That's a very good question. Personally, I've never been a, a supporter of universal basic income. Uh, 
but this crisis also forces me to rethink that position. Uh, I always thought that, that, you know, people are better off with universal basic jobs, yeah, that by a right to work and, and uh, basic income uh, that you can, you know, come home from saying, I, I earned this money. Uh, but sometimes it, it becomes a semantic discussion um, when it's jobs created by, uh, by, by the government. Uh, so I, I'm still I'm still not convinced that it could be the long-term solution uh, because uh, most of the studies I read about it is you know the difficulties of course that it's always uh, too high uh, and therefore killing a lot of jobs or too low and therefore causing a lot of inequality. If you have full employment as your your policy objective uh, and you're you're willing to create jobs and create opportunity. Uh, that could lead to, to, to a better outcome uh, for people uh, um, that, that are dependent on it and that do not find work in, in the current uh, regular labor market. Uh, but but I'm, you know, I'm uh, open for discussion, open for arguments. Uh, I think we all should be you know, willing to, to take, take a new look at, at our points of view. And the same goes for universal basic income. But, but for now, uh, um, I believe that we should try and, and change this situation in, in you know, uh, new jobs, creating new jobs, creating jobs that are part of a more sustainable future, and also creating jobs that are part of our uh, public services instead of trying to, to solve it with a long-term universal basic income. But, but this is, a, of course, a, a subject that is, that is discussed in, in our progressive family with great passion nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm going to turn to the, the final question, and we've, we've covered a lot uh, so far, social contract, internationalism, the politics of, of the European Union, universal basic income, new measures of well-being. Um, but uh, Gavin Charles has asked, what do you think the, the most overlooked issue is when we talk about recovery? Something that we, you know, we should address that is fundamental to the process, but that generally seems to get neglected. Well, I think uh, maybe two points uh, that, that seem to be to, to almost go unnoticed. First of all, the, the fact that transportation was so overvalued. I've, of course, I've, I've read some people making that, that point, but there's something there that, that we could use to our benefit. It's not the biggest issue, but I think it could be useful in, in you know, how we're going to invest our public money uh, you know, when, when we have to decide, are we going to build roads or are we going to build schools? Uh, the second thing that that is much of an issue in the United States, uh, but not so much in my country, in the Netherlands, and I've, I've read about it in the UK, but I don't know if it's um, you know, looked at enough in, in all of our countries, is, is how this uh, how this virus is, is affecting you know, people in a different way. The fact that minorities are hurt so much more in the United States and, and I believe in the UK is, is largely um, neglected in, in the Netherlands and in, in uh, some other countries in Europe. And I think we have to look at, at this and be honest about it and uh, realize that once again, ignoring um, the health differences that we see that are part of, of our larger economic uh, inequality is something we need to address as a society. It's not just uh, effect of life, 
it's the outcome of political uh, choices. And so I would hope that, that some of you, who I cannot see, but who are turning in will start writing about this and organizing about this and campaigning about this. Uh, because it's really unfair uh, to, to, to people who uh, are much more vulnerable about this. And, uh, and if we are not careful about this, it will be, lead to another, I would say, neoliberal guilt-inspired response, telling people, well, hey, you're overweight. Uh, that's your own fault. Well, I think it's, it's more of a, the outcome of the fact that we've, you know, let our food industry uh, have people become addicted to, to cheap food that makes them unhealthy. It's just an example of another social aspect of what we're witnessing now that I think should not be overlooked. But it's a great question. And, and uh, maybe you have suggestions yourself uh, that you can put into the chat that we should look into. Thanks very much, Gavin, for that question. And thanks, Lodovic, for answering. We're going to close the conversation there. But as I said, this is only the, the, the start of an ongoing conversation. For those of you uh, who joined us today and participated in this, thanks very much. Thanks for your engagement and thanks for your questions. Sorry if I didn't manage to get to all of them. In future sessions, uh, we will try and address them. You can rewatch this uh, podcast, this webinar, sorry, on the Recovery Project, or you can also find all of our podcasts there. For now, I'll close by thanking Lodovic Asha for, for sharing his vision about how we rebuild after the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you for your time. Best of luck in getting those getting traction for those ideas in the Netherlands and look forward to seeing you again soon, my friend. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Matt, and thanks everybody for joining and thanks uh, the Recovery Project for organizing this webinar. Be safe, everybody. Mm -hmm.